Well, this morning we are in Mark chapter 5, as we continue our series uh, through the life and ministry of Jesus, through all four Gospels. We're kind of bouncing around, and and as best we can, uh, putting these things in chronological order. And uh, last Sunday, I was away, had the opportunity uh, to go to my youngest brother's graduation from college at Iowa State, and then we, we just did a big tour of the Midwest, and we saw my mom for Mother's Day. She got to see uh, Charlie, uh, and then uh, we headed to a, a short missions conference I mentioned in Kansas City at Avant, and then we, as we came home, rather than drive that whole stretch from Kansas City in one shot with a four-month-old, we stopped in St. Louis and hung out there for part of the day and then uh, made our way home on Friday. And Charlie was a great traveler. In fact, he got me out of a speeding ticket. We were, uh, if you travel with a newborn or a baby in general, especially when he's breastfeeding, you're going to find out they eat on a, when they want to eat, they want to eat. And uh, you learn that besides traveling. So we were stopping about every two hours and uh, we were on our way home on Friday and we were, we were pushing the envelope for how long it had been since he ate. And so I, I, you know, I kind of pushed the pedal then too. And we're heading into, uh, it was in Indiana. I think we were heading into Wabash. And we could pop over the hill, and there's an officer sitting there, and sure enough, his lights come on right as we go past. I go, oh, no. So I pull over to the other lane, hoping maybe it was the guy in front of me that he got. And he pulled over behind me, and so we pulled over, and he comes up, and he goes, is there, there a reason you're going, you know, license registration, is there a reason you're going so fast today? And I said, uh, well, I said, we were, uh, we were trying to get into town before he blows up back here. And when he looked back and saw Charlie in the back seat, his whole demeanor changed. So I think he might have had young kids at home and ended up just giving us a warning. So, yeah, God's grace, right? And we're going to see this morning, we're going to learn about God's grace and his mercy. God's grace is when I, I don't get what I, or I get what I don't deserve. That's his grace. And his mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. It's two sides of the same coin. And uh, both of those, I didn't get what I did deserve, which was a ticket, a big one. And I did get what I didn't deserve, which is just a warning and got to keep going. All God's grace and God's mercy, right? And all of that's available to us through Jesus. We're going to see that in a minute this morning. But if you've got your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 5. I'm going to pray. And uh, then we're going to dive into this passage together. Mark chapter 5. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and uh, Lord, it's truly all about him, and it's all by his grace and all by his mercy that uh, I have the opportunity to to teach and to lead, and that that any of us have uh, the opportunity for good things in our lives and in our future. Um, Might you teach us that this morning, and for those who maybe Jesus haven't trusted you and turned to you, that today might be the day they would. And for those who have, but yet still stray from you, might today be the day where they recognize that they do, through the power of your Holy Spirit, have the power to turn back to you and to follow you and to resist the enemy. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy as servants, their works and effects. He seeks to kill and to destroy, to tempt us and to accuse us. Uh, But you are more powerful and, and greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. And uh, so might you teach us this morning and make us new and change us all in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. 
Mark chapter 5, uh, we're just going to kind of work through the text together this morning. I'm not going to read through it all at the beginning like I often do. We're just going to dive in and unpack it as we go. So starting in verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, some transla- other, other in Luke, Mark's or Matthew's gospel, I think it said the Gadarenes. And there's some, mis- there's some different opinions on which small town on the other side of the Sea of Galilee they were heading to. But if you remember when it says, and then they came to the other side a couple weeks ago, we taught through Mark chap- the end of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus heads out after a long day of ministry with his disciples. They get out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, really the Lake of Galilee, and a huge storm arises. And there's water crashing in the boat and Jesus wakes up. They wake him up. They shake him awake. And don't you care about us? And he gets up and and he he says, peace, be still. And the storm just stops. And it's peaceful and it's still. Well, later that night, early the next morning, whenever it is, they come to the other side of the lake. And so this is all within the same 24-hour period. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This was, late, this was later that night, early morning, and it's on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee from where they had been. Verse 2, And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. I think I've mentioned this before, but Mark, of all the gospel writers, um, Mark was a man of action. He didn't waste any time or waste any words. If you want a fun study, go through the book of Mark and underline every time that he says immediately or at once. And then this. And it's like if, if, if you took literally exactly all of Mark's immediately, it's like Jesus' ministry lasted about a day and a half. I mean, it was all just like immediately this, immediately that, immediately that. He, he's kind of the, uh, I call him sometimes the ADD writer of the gospels. He's, he's just all about business and action. And uh, it's a good book to read, by the way, if that's maybe your temperament and you just like to get to the point. Maybe you'd read through the Gospel of Mark this summer. But when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately, he says, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Well, he gets to the other side of the lake. And I showed you this picture a couple weeks ago of the, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And you can kind of see it. It's a little hard to see on the screen here, but you see that cliff there and then behind it and way down is the lake, right? It's just a a big lake. And this was the side they were traveling from, uh, actually kind of from the left off the screen and going to the other side, they were kind of traveling to what you see in the top right of the screen. That's where they were heading. They They took the boat all the way across to the other Side. And when they got there, it says, Mark tells us that this man came out of the tombs and met Jesus as soon as he stepped out of the boat. Um, well, out of the tombs, in the sides of these bluffs and these cliffs along the sea, there's many caves. And those caves often would have been used as uh, memorial grounds and places for burial. And so this man would have been living probably when it says in the tomb, some translations I think even say out of the caves he came. And he came down and he found Jesus as soon as he stepped his foot out of the boat. And this man, do you notice what Mark says about him? He was a man with an unclean spirit, with an unclean spirit. Not a holy spirit, just the Holy Spirit of God who's perfectly clean, perfectly righteous, without sin, but an unclean one. In other words, he was possessed by a demon. 
Now, uh, Tom taught last week as I was away, and he taught you about uh, Jesus' power over demons as kind of a precursor and a setup to this message. And I want to build on a lot of what he taught last Sunday and, and, and say a few more things even in addition to that. And, and I'll cover some of the same things he did, but... Uh, He covered this last week, but before we go on, uh, when we see this and we see a man in the Bible who's possessed by a demon, possessed by an unclean spirit, a lot of times, I know for me, when I first became a believer, it it threw up a lot of questions. What what does that mean? What does that look like? Is that going to happen to me? How do I make sure it doesn't happen to me? And so just two things uh, right off the bat going forward, I want you to understand and reiterate what what Tom taught last Sunday. Uh, Number one, if you're worried about that, number one, it is impossible, impossible, according to scripture, for a true Christian to be possessed by a demon. In other words, if you have truly turned to Jesus Christ, if you've truly repented of your sin and come to faith in Jesus it is absolutely 100% impossible for you to be possessed by a demon. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that? A demon, by the way, would be a servant of Satan, another one of the fallen angels who rebelled, he, they rebelled against God, and they're incredibly powerful, right? And they seek to kill and destroy and to tempt and accuse and to ruin God's plan. But God's still in control, And the reality is, if you're truly a Christian, you can never be possessed by a demon. Why? Well, because if you're truly a Christian, your possession has been made by the Holy Spirit. He's already chosen you and taken possession of you. You are his. You are God's child if you've truly repented and become a Christian. Right? You were a child of wrath. I remember we sing it sometimes. I was an orphan lost at the fall. But no, 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 you, you carry that out in Ephesians chapter two and Paul says you were a child of God's wrath, but now you've been adopted into his kingdom. You're part of his family. And once you're part of his family, he has a hold of you. Possession implies ownership and Christians are not owned by the enemy. They're owned by the son, by the Holy Spirit and by the father. Here's some, some backup for this for you. From first Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter six. Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? How are you going to have a demon living in you if the Holy Spirit's living in you? Jesus says it like this, a house divided against itself can't stand, right? It's because it's not possible. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not going to have a demon living in you who lives in you and was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself. And you don't belong to the enemy, by the way, either. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. This is what it means when Paul writes too in Ephesians that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that he seals believers and marks them as his own. Look in Ephesians chapter one. In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So once the Holy Spirit has a hold of you, how long does he have you? Yeah, forever, until you gain possession of your inheritance. Has anyone arrived yet? You got your inheritance? You got perfectly sinless life. You've got joy everlasting. You've got uh, living uh, in the city of God with Jesus in the middle of it. No sun, no darkness, just the light of Jesus. You have that yet? No, so you know what? The Holy Spirit has you, if he truly has you, and you've truly repented. He has you until that day, and no one else is going to have you. That's what Paul says. 
He goes on, he says this to the Corinthians as well in his second letter to him. He says, it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and who has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The sum of the matter is this. If, if you're truly a Christian, and I, you notice I keep saying truly a Christian, because I think a lot of times people fool themselves that they, they prayed a prayer one time when they were like three or four years old, or they, they've gone to church their whole life, or I've, I've given a lot. To, no, no, no. To truly be a Christian means this. It means that I recognize I'm sinful and I have no hope on my own. And I repent of my way of life. In other words, I turn from my sin. And I turn where? I turn to Jesus Christ. I don't turn to rituals. I don't turn to uh, taking enough communion or praying enough prayers or giving enough money. No, no. I turn to Jesus who's done it all for me. There's nothing to add to it other than just to believe in him. That's what it means to truly be a Christian. Sitting in your pew, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. I say it like this all the time. You probably get tired of me saying it, but just like you go to Taco Bell, you don't become a chalupa. You can sit in Taco Bell all the time. You can eat all kinds of chalupas. You might look like a chalupa after about four or five. You might smell like one too, but you're not one. Same thing. You can come to church. You can go through all the motions. You can do it all. And you might look like a Christian, but have you truly repented? Have you really given your heart to Jesus? If you have, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the very end. And you're his for all time. The sum of the matter is that a a true Christian and a follower of Jesus, you cannot and will not ever be possessed or indwelt by a demon. You have nothing to fear in that way. Because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And once you're his, you're his till the end. You're his till the end. I don't know, Josh. I don't know. I think maybe you could lose your salvation if you sin bad enough. If you could lose your salvation, you would. (laughs) is the way I understand scripture. I know there's others who disagree on that. And if you do, uh, we'll agree to disagree in in an agreeable way. And it's okay. Um, We're not going to fight over it. But but I really believe as I read scripture that it's the clear teaching of scripture that once Jesus has a hold of you, he's not letting go of you. And it's not so much you holding on to him as it is him holding on to you. See, Paul says it like this. We just read, you know, that he's the guarantee the Holy Spirit uh, is until you acquire possession of, of your inheritance to the praise of his glory. It's not about you. It's about him. And he he goes on later in Ephesians chapter four, don't grieve the Holy spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption till the end. And Jesus even says it like this. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. They turn to me and, and uh, they've been given to me by the, by my father and no one can snatch them out of his hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, You know who that includes? I think that includes me jumping out of his hand. (laughs) He's got me. Now, it, you're like, well, what about people? They, they profess faith and then they turn and they run and they do stupid things and they never. I don't know if they're ever in his hand. Praying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Repentance does. When you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus, that makes you a Christian. So all that to say, it's impossible for a true Christian to be possessed by a demon. But here's the second thing before we move into this passage. It is possible... Uh, for a Christian to be oppressed by demons. To be oppressed, not possessed, but oppressed. Uh, in fact, you, you might even argue that it should be expected in many ways. The Bible says that the devil seeks to devour believers in First Peter chapter 5. Uh, he, he's like a roaring lion who seeks to, to devour and kill and destroy you. 
And just like Satan attempted to tempt Jesus, he tempts us and tries to get us to ruin and shipwreck our faith and opposes our efforts to obey God. Here's a definition, a good one, I think, of demonic oppression. It's when a demon is temporarily victorious over a Christian, successfully tempting a Christian to sin and hindering their ability to serve God with a strong testimony. And, and Tom taught this very clearly last week. If, if you continue to allow that oppression in your life, and here's what it looks like when you allow it. It means um, I, I keep sinning, and I just think that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal, and I keep sinning. You know what you're doing? You're taking the door, and you're going, hey, you're just totally exposing yourself to the enemy. And the more that happens, the harder it is going to be for you to, to shed that sin and to turn back to Jesus and go back to him. But can you? You can. But I'm telling you, it's going to be harder. And demonic oppression shows its way in many ways, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, um, all, all kinds of different ways it shows up in people's lives, in the lives of believers. And the way that you close yourself off to that is uh, repentance. I turn from my sin, and I turn where? To Jesus. Why? Because Jesus rescues us from our sin, and he's conquered the enemy, and, and they have no right to us. They, they can hinder us, they can slow us down, but ultimately we're the sons, and he's ours. And as we turn back to him and repent, we free ourselves from that. And by, by the way, you open yourself up to that type of oppression, and, and really you might even think of it simply as temptation by the things you watch. What, what movies are you going to? What music are you listening to? Um, uh, the things you read. Uh, the people you hang out with. <laughs> who, who are you spending your time with? Are they, are, they, are they influencing you to be more like the world, or are you influencing them to be more like Jesus? And by the way, the more you grow in your faith, the more you can, can go and but, but guard your heart. Guard your heart. Now, as it comes to oppression, a couple things. And then we're going to dive in and we'll work through this passage quickly and we'll see how Jesus deals with this man who's been demon-possessed and how we ought to respond like he does. But, but in dealing with oppression, number one, I've kind of said this already, but Christians can and should resist oppression. You should resist the devil. In fact, uh, James tells, tells us this, that, that you should resist him. And when you do, that he flees from you. And you do this by confession and repentance, as I said. And the Apostle John gives us great encouragement. He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who's been born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. And the power of victory for you as a believer and a follower of Jesus is always available. Because John declares, the, the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. And the power of the indwelling spirit, Paul writes in Romans, is always available to overcome temptation. No demon, not even Satan himself, can present you from surrendering to the Holy Spirit. He can't prevent you from repenting. You're like, oh, I don't know. I've sinned so much. The devil made me do it. No, he, he might have influenced you to do it, but you've got a choice if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have the power to turn back to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit living within you. And as I said, let me just say this too. You know, James says that we should resist the enemy, but sometimes you turn on TV and I'd be leery sometimes about everything you see on TV, just heads up. And, and sometimes you'll find somebody teaching something where, oh, we, not just resist, we ought to rebuke the devil. And we, you know, we ought to seek him out and find him and root him out. And 
I think that's foolishness. The Bible never says anywhere to rebuke the enemy. Jesus rebukes him because Jesus is God and is more powerful than him. But you left on your own are not more powerful than the enemy. You absolutely are not. That's why you need Jesus. You're to resist him. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit in you, when you resist temptation and you resist his onslaught, uh, he flees from you because he can't come against Jesus. You're never called to go out and seek and rebuke him. You're called to resist him, to resist him and to turn your eyes on Jesus. So you notice we don't talk about these things a lot simply because it's more important for you and more healthy for you not to be so concerned with the demonic as it is to be concerned and have your eyes on Jesus Christ because he's the one who's gonna free you from that oppression. Put on the armor of God, as Tom taught last week, and resist the onslaught of the enemy. Lewis Jones wrote this hymn, would you be free from the burden of sin? From the burden of temptation? Well, there's, there's power, where? In the blood, in the blood of Jesus. Would you over evil a victory win? No, not you, but where would you? Through the power of the blood, through Jesus. Jesus is the one who helps you fight the battle. In fact, he's the one who fights the battle. You simply stand firm and resist and trust him and keep your eyes on him. But with those two thoughts in mind, let's, let's go through this passage now. Uh, Mark writes, this man, he lived among the tombs, as I said, kind of in the caves, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He was demon-possessed, and he was incredibly strong. Why? Because left to yourself, apart from Jesus Christ, the enemy will decimate you every single time. Every time. The enemy is more powerful than you. Don't mess with the occult. Don't mess with witchcraft. Don't mess with just stupidness. Don't open yourself up to that. Guard your heart. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This guy was violent and physically abusive. Uh, they had bound him, we're going to find out. If you keep reading. Um, well, before we keep reading, though, let's just, let me say this. Uh, when, you, when you don't worship Jesus, ultimately what you're doing is you're worshiping a demon. You're giving worth to him, not to Jesus. I said this before, but I really believe every other religion ultimately behind it has not a God like our God, but a demon. And I say this at, at risk, to be honest, but uh, Islam, the, I believe there's a powerful demon named Allah who deceives people and hurts them. I believe in, in other world religions, there's powerful demons behind that. And you're like, why would you say that, Josh? That sounds kind of, who gives you the right to say that? Well, God's word says it. In, in the Old Testament and the New, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, they, they stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they, appro- they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed, notice he doesn't, Moses doesn't say to strange gods. He says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers never dreaded. Moses said are demons. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer not to gods, but to demons. I don't want you to be participants, Paul writes, with demons. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. The Apostle John describes worshiping Jesus 
not worshiping Jesus as worshiping demons in Revelation as well. And, and some, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting and you're like, ah, all this demon talk. Who are these people? This is just weird. I don't believe this stuff. I can't wait to go home. This is strange. Well, if you don't believe in some of these things, it's okay. We still love you. But I would warn you that you may be the most deceived of all. And in fact, C.S. Lewis, when he talked about some of these things, he wrote that the greatest trick the enemy ever played was to convince people that he didn't exist. Now, being convinced he exists, again, it's not going and looking under every rock trying to find a demon, trying to find the devil, and being, oh, the boogeyman. You know, it's, it's not that. No, no, no. It, it's keeping your eyes on Jesus. Don't seek it out. Seek Jesus. He frees you and rescues you from these things. Demons are powerful, but run from them. Run to Jesus. And the way, that's the way you resist. You resist by running to Jesus and then trusting him as you stand firm. Trusting him. You run to Jesus and you trust him. Now, do you still have to do a little bit of work? Yeah, you got to stand firm. It's, there's not some magic prayer or some magic incantation or whatever else that you can do. And all of a sudden, everything's going to be great. No, no, no. You run to Jesus and you say, Jesus, help me. And you keep your eyes on him and you stand firm. And when temptation comes, you go, um, I'm, I'm dead to that. I'm not doing that sin anymore. I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. And when more oppression comes and bad things comes, you go, you know what? Uh, that stinks, but I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus and I'm trusting him. And, and you resist. And that's what it looks like. You still have to do some work, but you're only going to be able to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit helping you. Well, this man, again, he had been bound. Look at verse 4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. So in other words, around his feet and his wrists. But he wrenched the chains apart. It wasn't David Copperfield where he slipped out of them. No, he just went... More like Hulk Hogan tearing his t-shirt. I mean, but it was with chains, right? And just, just boom, he's free. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Why? Because he was empowered by the enemy. And apart from Jesus, you cannot withstand the enemy. You cannot. No one had the strength. You cannot and you will not. Apart from Jesus, you'll be, I said it, you'll be decimated every time. Well, look at verse five. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, this man was always crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. Luke's account of this tells us that for years he went without clothes. So imagine this man, he's naked, he's bleeding, he has wounds. uh, He's incredibly powerful, incredibly mean. He's cutting himself all the time. A demon seeks to ruin you. The enemy wants to ruin you and to destroy you. And the best way he can do that is to destroy God's image in you. As as a youth pastor, and I know even as a pastor, I know there's many people, they struggle with cutting themselves because they feel like that physical pain is, uh, is more bearable than the emotional pain they feel inside. If you struggle with that, I love you. We want to help you get free from that. That's an attack of the enemy. You see this man who's possessed by a demon doing the same thing, destroying God's image in you. Flee from that. Resist it. Turn to Jesus. Now, you might fail at times and go back to it, but what's the overall progress? Keep coming back to Jesus when you fail. I fail. We all do. 
but turn back to him. Well, this man, naked, dirty, bleeding, mutilating himself, verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, look what he did. He ran and he fell down before him. Now, I wonder, when anybody else approached this man who was living in the caves, and he came out, I wonder what he did. Did he run after them and scare them away? I bet he did. I, I, I bet he did. I bet he's just, just going crazy after him. And I wonder if that's exactly what he was trying to do with Jesus. But notice, look what, look what happens when he gets to Jesus after Jesus gets out of the boat. He gets to Jesus and boom, on his knees. I don't know that this was his will to simply bow before Jesus. I think it was just the power of who, and you can disagree with me on this, that's okay. But I think it was the power of Jesus that he gets there and all of a sudden, boom, nope, uh-uh, not happening. Jesus is the only one who had the power to subdue this man. Everyone else he chased off, maybe beat up. But when he gets to Jesus, he can't do a thing. He falls to his knees. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He probably said it a lot scarier than I said it, by the way. But what do you have to do with me? In other words, uh, really, he's kind of saying, why are you associating with me? Why are you, why are you here? What do you have to do with me? But notice then he responds in fear. First he calls Jesus by his name because it was believed at that time that uh, to call a spirit by its name was to, uh, or an authority by their, their full name was to exert authority over them. Notice he calls, every time a demon comes up and they speak to Jesus, they try to call him by his full name. Son of the most high God, son of the living God, the son of God. And in this case, it's the same thing. And, and, and then he appeals, ironically, to God's mercy. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. When you face oppression, what do you do? I hope you run and fall at the feet of Jesus. He's the only one who's going to be able to help you through it and overcome it every time. And you do that, you do that by, by prayer and you do that by opening his word. Because you know what? Everything you need for life to follow Jesus, God wrote it all down. He wrote it all down in his book. The one you have in your hand. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Take it home. It's yours. Write your name in it. Color it. I don't care. It's yours. Take it. Um, but maybe you might read the Psalms as a place to start. If you just open right to the middle, you're probably going to find the Psalms. And read them, and you'll identify with some of the emotion of the guy writing, and you can even take that and pray it. Uh, like, like David, oh, oh Lord, have mercy on me. And, and oh God, where are you? Help me. Come to my rescue. You know, we're actually going to be doing that as a church this summer, starting in June. And June and July, we're going to be preaching through a handful of different Psalms. And then throughout the week, you're going to be encouraged to pray through those Psalms. So maybe you get a head start. And doing that even this week. But he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? What do you have to do with me? You know, a lot of people respond to Jesus that way. When he confronts their sin. What do, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want with me? I, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to turn to you. I don't want to do that. What, what, do, you want to, what, do, you, what do you have to do with me? What, leave me alone. That was this man. And we're going to see that was the people in a moment as well. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demon asked Jesus not to torment it. And this word for torment or torture is graphic. 
And the Bible says that at the end of the end of time, the devil and his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire. And Matthew recorded his question is, have you come to torment us before the time? <laughs> they knew that that, and they know that Satan knows his, his, his end is doom. He knows it is. Hell was prepared for, for him. <laughs> for him. And the, these demons know that that's what's, what's coming, but they go, don't, don't do it now before it's time. They, they know it's coming. They know Jesus has power. Look at verse 8. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Well, a legion in the Roman army was the largest unit of soldiers in the Roman army. So the people there, they would have been familiar with legions of, of soldiers. Anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So, so does that mean this man had 3,000 to 6,000 demons in him? We don't know. It doesn't say. But we know he had many. He wasn't possessed by just one, but by many demons. He had really opened himself up somehow uh, through, through false religion, through occultic practices, to where the enemy had taken over him. And he begged, verse 10, he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Again, they were afraid their ultimate fate was at hand. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, they begged Jesus, they said, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Notice, in this case, it says they begged him, so all the demons begin to beg. (laughs) Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Here's what you're going to see. Sometimes maybe what you see in a movie or see on TV, you, you, you associate exorcisms with like small rooms and incantations and incense and all kinds of goofy stuff. Watch what Jesus does. Watch how Jesus deals with demons, the one who actually has power over them. Verse 13, so what did he do? He gave them permission. In Matthew's gospel, you know what he said? He said, go. And they went. One word. We sang that. We tremble not for him. (laughs) One little word will fell him. We sang that this morning already, right? For Martin Luther when he wrote that hymn. And the unclean spirits came came out and they entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they drowned in the sea. You know, sometimes we hear that and we go, didn't Jesus have any respect for those herdsmen's personal property? Why would he do such a thing? You ever think about it that way? How do you suppose the herdsmen responded to Jesus casting the demons into the pigs? And there goes their livelihood over the cliff into the water. If you're wondering, go down to the county fair this summer and open up all the pens and chase all the animals down into Winona Lake. See what happens to you. I wouldn't do that. But you can imagine they're pretty upset, right? They're pretty upset. And Jesus just does it with a simple word. You know, that's exactly how it's going to happen in the end. If you read Revelation, we, we preached through this a few years ago, but Revelation chapter 19, John writes this, starting in verse 11, I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there and its rider was named Faithful and True. This is Jesus. For he judges fairly. He wages a righteous war. In his eyes, this doesn't sound like any flannel graph I saw as a kid in Sunday school. His eyes were like flames of fire. 
and on his head he wore, he wore many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, dipped in blood because he had been uh, trampling the wine press in, in terms of it's the blood of people who have rejected him. And his title was the word of God. And the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sword, a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And you get to the end, verse 21, uh, the entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the horse. In other words, by his word. (laughs) That battle is going to be so short and it's going to be powerful. And if you get the opportunity to ride in on a horse behind Jesus, you may be carrying a sword, but I'm telling you, you ain't going to be doing any fighting because Jesus is just going to be like, and it's going to be over with a word, with a word, no magic rituals, no, uh, no, no magic incantations, no nonsense. He just says, go and they go. That's the power he has over demons since they can't destroy this man, they're begging, let us destroy something else of God's creation. They want to go to the pigs. And so Jesus sends them there. And some, again, they have trouble with this because why would Jesus ruin this other guy's livelihood? Well, you know how I see it? I see it. Jesus valued this man's soul a whole lot more than he valued that man's livelihood. He would take care of him somehow. All people matter. And this person who had, everyone had rejected, no one could control. Jesus comes in, And he cast the demons out. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled. They told it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. The herdsmen fled. Imagine you're there. You're just hanging out with your pigs, and all of a sudden, they just start rooting and going crazy, and they tear off over a cliff. Would you freak out a little bit? And you look around, and you realize it was that guy that did it? And the demoniac standing right there? You're terrified. You run. I think they were terrified. They ran into town, told everybody what had happened, But I wonder what happened while they were gone. What did Jesus and the disciples do while they were gone? Well, I think uh, they clothed this man. They bound up his wounds. They cared for him. He was suddenly, look look at this, he was in his right mind. They came to Jesus, all the people came, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, unshackled, clothed. (laughs) He'd been naked for years, Luke told us. And in his right mind, they were afraid. They were afraid. Listen, if you had turned to Jesus, he's come not just to restore the demoniac to his right mind, but to restore, restore you and I to our right mind. When you're struggling with depression, when you're struggling, struggling with obsessing over certain things, whatever that is, he has the power to restore you and I to our right mind. And sometimes multiple times a day. He has the power to do it. But look, the people were afraid. Have you ever seen somebody like this who they've had just a major change in their life after encountering Jesus? You're like, who is this guy? That's not who they were. Who is this? Maybe you're even afraid a little bit because you know how they used to be. And now they're in church. What are they in church for? Why are they here? And you, you find out, wow, Jesus has done some incredible things in that woman, in that man. Let me ask you, if you could hop in the DeLorean and go back 10 years and pull somebody from 10 years ago and bring them back to the future, and and they would look at you today, would they look at you after 10 years now of walking with Jesus, and would they go, "Uh, who is this guy? Who is this woman? Look how much they've grown. 
Look how much more they're like Jesus. I hope they would. Are you more loving today than 10 years ago? Are you more uh, compassionate today? Are you less critical today? Are, are you slower to anger today? Are you more secure? Are you more peaceful, more kind, more joyful? Are you more like Jesus? This man clearly was. And you may not see it day to day in your life, but I would think over 10 years, hopefully you would see some change. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were afraid. And as he was getting into the boat, by the way, it never, the, the Bible never records Jesus going back to this area. They rejected their opportunity to trust him, to invite him in. Has he come to the shore of your heart today? Has he stepped out of the boat? And has he said, listen, I can change you. I love you. I want to clothe you. I want to restore you to your right mind. But are you going, no, I'm afraid. Go away. Listen, there's no guarantee you get another chance. These people never got another chance to see him, according to God's word. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Well, as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. You would think Jesus would go, yeah, come on, let's go, right? Notice what he does. He did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You remember last summer we did a short series called God Who Sends? We'll probably pick that up again at some point in the future and add some more. We looked at characters of the Bible, and every time after uh, somebody turns to God and to his call in their life, the next thing he does, he sends them out to be his ambassadors and to be his witnesses. We see the exact same thing here with the demoniac. Jesus healed him and saved him, and then you know what he did? He said, nope, go home. (laughs) Go tell everybody uh, what the Lord has done for you and how he's shown such mercy to you. Have you trusted Jesus? Have you? You know what else has happened to you then? You've been sent. You're a missionary. Fred and Abby are headed to Indonesia, but he's sent you maybe to a factory in, uh, in New Paris or in Goshen or maybe to an office building in Warsaw. Or where has he sent you? Maybe to a school in Syracuse or North Webster. Where has he sent you? He sent you there. Are, are you telling people everything uh, like Jesus commanded this man to, to tell them of everything that the Lord has done for you? You're like, I don't know how to do that. Well, it's simple. Jesus lays it out. We're going to end with this really quickly. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. Number one, tell them how much Jesus has done for you. Make a list. You're like, I don't know if he's done anything. Make a list. Are you breathing? That's because of Jesus. He loves you. Uh, Do do you have clothes on today? Looking around. I think so. Everybody. Yep, we do. Guess what? That's God's grace to you. Uh, Do do you have health of some sort? You're breathing, right? Yep, yep. Everything you have, every good and perfect gift, James says. Jesus' half-brother, his little brother, said every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights who is never changing. He's never changing. So maybe a simple way you do this is the next time something good happens and you say, yeah, yeah, that was, oh, I was, I was really lucky. No, no, don't say that. Say, no, 
God's really blessed me. No, don't even say that. Name him. Name him. Yeah, Jesus has been really good to me. Jesus has been really good to me. You don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to be like, Jesus has been, you know, no, no, no. Just, yeah, Jesus has been really good to me. I can say that for my life. I could tell you that about my speeding ticket. You're like, that was Charlie. No, no. <laughs> it may have been Charlie, but, but it's by God's grace. I got what I didn't deserve. I didn't get what I do deserve. And Jesus was really good to me. My insurance didn't go up. I didn't have a hefty fine. Charlie wasn't even crying at the time. He was really good to me. That's a small example. How has he been good to you? Name him. Say it. You don't have to be weird about it. But name him. When somebody compliments you about something good, yeah, Jesus has been really good to me. Tell them what he's done for you. And then as you get opportunity, maybe more specific, number two, tell them how Jesus has shown mercy to you. How has he shown mercy to you? Well, for me, he showed mercy where I I didn't get um, that fine. But he's shown a lot more mercy to that because there's a fine that I owe for my sin. I deserve to be tossed into the lake of fire along with all the demons and Satan himself. But he's shown mercy to me. And when I sin, I deserve awful things. But each time he shows mercy to me and he restores me as I turn to him. So tell him what good things he's done and then as you get the opportunity, expand on that. Tell him about his mercy and his grace to you. It's all about Jesus. Verse 20. And the man went away, and he began began to proclaim in the Decapolis. That just means there were ten cities there that kind of had an alliance. Deca, ten. uh, Polis, city, the ten cities. How much Jesus had done for him. And what did everybody do? They marveled. See, one thing I've found in terms of sharing my faith is I'm never going to convince somebody to trust Jesus. But, because they could argue with me and they say, oh, you're crazy. I say, I know. But let me tell you what he's done for me. (laughs) Let me tell you what he's done. You know what? They cannot argue with that. They can't argue with the fact that he's been incredibly good to me. He's helped me through some incredibly hard times. And he saved my soul. Would you trust him? Let's pray. We'll take our offering and sing together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for his grace to me. Um, Lord, as we're going to sing, you, you take our sin and you take our sorrow and our shame. And out of that, Jesus, you miraculously, in a way that no one but you can, you come and you make uh, good things out of our sin and out of our, our struggle and out of things that you even look at and say, that's bad, but let me take it and make it good. You promised to do that, to work everything for good in the lives of those who loved you and who are called to you according to your purpose. Father, I pray for for each one here today. I pray for those who have never trusted you that today might be the day uh, they would run from their sin, they would run from temptation, and Jesus, they would run to you. That they'd be made new, that they'd be adopted into your family, and that you would help them then to resist the enemy. I pray too for those of us who have trusted you. Give us courage and remind us of the truth that, that we're not powerless that we have your Holy Spirit living in us to help us and to enable us and to empower us and to encourage us. But let us be wise, never seeking out 
uh, demonic things or seeking to go into battle against the enemy, but instead Jesus seeking you and letting you do the battle and trusting you to win and fight. Because in the end, you're the one in the front line riding in on your horse and you're the one, you're the one that does all the battle. And we simply resist and trust you. Father, thanks for Jesus. Help us then to go like this man did and to tell others of what he's done for us, both in the good blessings and good things he's given us, but also the mercy he's shown towards us. And I pray that as we do, others might marvel and they too might turn to you. Thanks for Jesus. I pray all this through him. Amen.